We know that defective genes cause disease. We've learned that defective genes cause epilepsy. You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. David A. Greenberg, Director, Division of Statistical Genetics, Professor, Department of Biostatistics at Mailman School of Public Health and New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York. Dr. Greenberg and I are discussing how genetic analysis helps us understand epilepsy. Dr. Greenberg, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you very much, Bruce. Pleasure to be here. So how long have you been studying epilepsy and using statistical analysis and gene analysis? Oh, since about 1980, the very start, I would say, of the modern genetic era. And what got you into epilepsy research in the first place? Well, I had been at Harbor Hospital in California and had been studying the genetics of common disease, which was relatively unusual to study back in those days. I got a call from Dr. Anthony B. Delgado Escueda, who was starting a study of epilepsy, both its social aspects, its clinical aspects, and its etiological aspects at the UCLA in Los Angeles. And it sounded like a terrific challenge, and I went there and started one of the very first genetic studies of a common form of epilepsy. There had been studies of very rare forms of epilepsy up until then, but very few people had studied the common forms because the genetic tools were new. Are you currently studying all forms of epilepsy or just some of them? Currently, I'm studying forms of epilepsy that start in adolescence and childhood, and I'm particularly focusing on what are called the generalized epilepsies. There are two broad classes of epilepsies, and these are very broad classes. One are the generalized epilepsies, and the other are the focal epilepsies. Generalized epilepsies are epilepsies where the seizures appear to start over the entire brain at one time. So if you're doing an EEG and you see the seizure start, the EEG patterns are normal, and then all of a sudden, over the entire brain, you see the epileptic seizure begin. Focal epilepsies are different. The focal epilepsies tend to start from one spot in the brain and then spread. This spot can be the result of, for example, an injury where the brain was injured and developed scar tissue, and this then becomes like a short circuit in that particular part of the brain. Very often, it's those kinds of seizures are the result of injury or the result of a metabolic problem. So we're concentrating on the generalized epilepsies because the generalized epilepsies are the ones that tend to be the most genetic. So tell us about epilepsy genetic analysis research and what you found. The biggest problem in trying to study the genetics of any common disease is what disease are you looking at? Now, epilepsy itself, which means basically repeated seizures, having one seizure is not an epilepsy, not epilepsy because you can have a seizure for a number of reasons, hypoglycemia, getting hit on the head, but repeated seizures is epilepsy. Now, Epilepsy is really more of a symptom than it is a disease because there are many different kinds of epilepsy. There's a very large and elaborate classification scheme that exists to classify the epilepsies. We focused on a particular form of epilepsy that, based on the literature at the time, seemed to be a specific form of epilepsy and seemed to be mostly genetic. When I say mostly genetic, I mean that the evidence was that it was inherited. There didn't seem to be any environmental causes for this epilepsy. 
that the epilepsy appeared more frequently in families than it did in the general population. That is, if you found a family with one person with this particular form of epilepsy, then it was more likely than if you chose a family at random that another person in the family would have epilepsy. But most compelling was that it was reported that families with this particular form of epilepsy, that other members of the family showed not epilepsy, but abnormal EEGs. That is, they had a trait that you could see which you associated with epilepsy, but where they didn't have the epilepsy. They just had this trait. And it was a trait that you see in patients with epilepsy. So we decided that this appears to be more genetic than other forms of disease and appeared to be specific. This form of epilepsy is called juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. The original name of it was impulsive petit mal, a name given to it by Professor Dr. Dieter Jans back in about 1957. And then it was independently discovered, if that's the right word, or described by Antonio Delgado Escueda in Los Angeles a number of years later. And he called it juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. The characteristics of this epilepsy are very specific. The chief characteristic is the patients have myoclonic jerks in the morning shortly after awakening. A very specific symptom. That's what helped us to say that this is going to be a specific form of epilepsy, and we're trying to cut out the other possible forms of epilepsy that may be similar to it. When I say myoclonic jerks in the morning, by the way, I mean patients would wake up in the morning, maybe go into the bathroom, and their arms would jerk up, sometimes when they were holding something that would fly out of their hands. So with that specific symptom, that's what we went after, and that allowed us to say, if we go after this particular form of epilepsy with this particular symptom, then other forms of epilepsy, which will have different genes involved, but which may ordinarily look similar, will be cut out and will have a purified disease to go after, which gives us a hope of finding the gene. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Dr. David A. Greenberg of Mailman School of Public Health and New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, and we're talking about how genetic research is improving our understanding of epilepsy. So how many genes have you located now for this type of juvenile myoclonic epilepsy? For certain, we have located two genes that we have believe are very influential in the expression of this disease, both of which we are working on right now to try and prove what they do and absolutely definitively demonstrate that these are the genes that we are looking for. As I've said before, once you find a gene that you say, this must be the one involved, you have to then prove that that's the one involved. And what we have so far is one gene that we have is on chromosome 6, and it's called BRD2. The letters don't particularly mean anything important. But we don't know what this gene does. That's one of the biggest problems. It appears to be involved in DNA remodeling or in the processing of DNA or the expression of other genes involved in the area but we don't know exactly what it does. So the first thing we have to do is show, since we can't say, ah, this is an enzyme deficiency and we're looking at the enzyme, we can't do that, so we have to try and figure out what the gene is doing. In order to do that, what we have done is that we have created a mouse that has this gene deficient, that it has no copies of this gene working or it only has one copy. And in research that I'm going to present, we show that mice that have only one copy of this gene have a deficiency in neurons in the brain that inhibit electrical activity. So there's not enough inhibition of the electrical activity, which implies that they're potentially epileptic mice because 
what is epilepsy is actually a storm in the brain, an electrical storm, where somehow it is believed, among many of the other general descriptions, that there isn't enough inhibition of the electrical activity, and so somehow it breaks out and becomes an electrical storm. That's where we're moving to try and demonstrate that this gene, where all the statistical evidence, not only ours, but other people have replicated these results, all the statistical evidence says that this gene is somehow involved in epilepsy. And once we understand what it's doing, then we will be able to understand what the origins of the epilepsy are, which we cannot say for even a single form of common epilepsy yet. And what's the other gene that you're working on? The other gene that we have evidence is involved is a big surprise to us. It appears to be an enzyme. In fact, it appears to be an enzyme involved in the basic operations of the cell. The Krebs cycle is the basic cycle of every cell that produces energy. It takes sugars, it breaks them down, it turns them into energy to ATP, which then powers the cell. One of these enzymes, which there are several, is called ME2, or malic enzyme 2. So it was a big surprise to us to be able to come across this gene first by through linkage analysis and then by association analysis that pointed to this gene co-segregating with the disease within families. Now, I was mystified as to how this could possibly have anything to do with epilepsy and thought it must be some kind of mistake. There must be another gene in the region that we missed. But then I was alerted to the work of a Dr. Hassel who had shown that this enzyme in the brain has a special function. It is involved in the production of neurotransmitters, both neurotransmitters of glutamate and GABA, the major inhibitory and the major uh, excitatory neurotransmitters in the brain. So this gives us a connection between the activity of this enzyme and potentially epilepsy. We're working to find out, is this really it, and is this the connection that connects this enzyme to epilepsy? And we have a bit of work to do to go and show that. But there have been other studies that have suggested that we are correct, but there's work to be done to try and prove it for sure. And your website biography talks about the importance of understanding the clinical picture of disease in order to define the phenotype that will lead to a successful genetic analysis. Tell us what that means. As I said before, you can't study the genetics of a disease if you have a mixture of diseases. You can't study the genetics of fever, and you can't study the genetics of red spot disease because there are lots of different diseases that cause red spots. And that was a quote from the New York Times a number of weeks ago. So being able to define clinically the disease you're looking for means you need the expert input from clinicians who really understand the disease and who have the knowledge that geneticists need to be able to say this is important and this isn't important. Physicians look at diseases differently than scientists or geneticists. Physicians look at diseases as an entity to treat. They want to make the disease better. They want it to go away. And so from a physician's point of view, if he treats a disease with a recommended drug and the disease goes away or is improved, then the diagnosis was correct. But for a geneticist, that doesn't prove that the diagnosis was correct. We need to be able to have very clear guidelines and very definitive diagnoses, very definitive phenotypes in order for the genetic techniques that we have to be able to work. That's why knowledge of what's going on clinically is absolutely critical before you even begin a genetic study. You always have to ask, is this specific enough? Can we make it more specific? Are there clinical signs that are going to differentiate the different diseases? So again, with diabetes, childhood onset and adult onset diabetes, which may look the same clinically in many ways, you have to be able to 
differentiate the characteristics. In this case, an absence of insulin in the case of juvenile diabetes and too much insulin in the case of maturity onset diabetes. These clinical characteristics allow us to separate the diseases and give us a chance to have the genetic techniques that we have find the genes that we're looking for. We've sequenced the healthy human genome and are now sequencing the human HapMap genome of common diseases. What are the tools that allow us to map this new frontier? And what will this mapping mean to preventing, treating, and curing disease? I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Greenberg, for guiding us through this journey of gene discovery, especially focused on juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.